in the back. Good morning. The reading is from Matthew 18, verses 15 to 35. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter approached him and asked the Lord, <clears throat> Excuse me. How many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of God. Amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Um, yeah, grateful to be with you guys this morning, even in the middle of just absolutely freezing temperatures that um, I love very much. Not true. Um, but as I was kind of thinking about this stuff, I started thinking about personality tests. And one thing that I love about personality tests is that they can be super helpful and in terms of helping us really understand our tendencies. They help us understand who we are as people. They reveal motivations, fears, frustrations maybe, and they can help us really interact with people, uh, especially as we consider maybe some strengths and weaknesses, specifically maybe in a, in a workplace environment. 
So as I was considering this, one thing we do as a staff team is we kind of uh, give our staff, hey, here's some different personality tests that are going to help us just function as a staff team to kind of see what are some strengths for you? What are some weaknesses? How can we encourage each other in our strengths? And in our weaknesses, how can we uh, continue to hold each other accountable and lift each other up? Now, as you kind of wrestle with all this, you start to see, oh, workplaces. That means there's going to be some conversations where if somebody has a weakness, somebody has a frustration, and you kind of start clashing together, it seems like there might be some conflict. And so an area that uh, we wanted to maybe just see how, how as a staff team can we continue to grow um, in terms of just our relationships is understanding how to have good conversations in the middle of conflict. And so one of the personality tests that we took was called the SDI, or the Strengths Development Inventory. And one thing I really enjoy about this specific one is that it actually uh, kind of talks about where you go in conflict and how you handle conflict specifically. And so I've got uh, kind of a scan of my results um, right up there in terms of kind of like a pyramid and there's like red and blue and there's green and then there's like an arrow that kind of tells you where you tend to go in conflict kind of a thing. And so if you look at it, you can kind of see that there's uh, essentially this space where it talks about, hey, the three stages of conflict, can't really see it too much on the screen, but uh, if you look, mine's like the G, the R, the B. And so the SDI tells you there's three stages is kind of what they say. Stage one is kind of like, hey, you typically tend to go there in the middle of conflict. Stage two is like, if that didn't work, here's the next step. Uh, here's where you go after that. And if that doesn't work, there's stage three, which they say usually only happens like a small handful of times in your life. And so mine kind of goes green, red, blue. And so what this means is I typically tend to be analytic and logical, reserved in my responses in the middle of conflict. Uh, and as I kind of give my answers, there may be a little bit uh, more in terms of like, okay, I got to make sure it's the arguments in line. Uh, and then if that doesn't work, I tend to then go to the next stage, which is red. Uh, the red just kind of symbolizes the way I kind of turn in those situations as I become maybe a little bit more forceful. I start attacking a little bit more in my language, and I use essentially the logic and the strategies to my advantage so I can win the argument. And then the third one is blue. So basically, when, I, when that doesn't work, I just kind of submit, and I tend to just say, you know what, whatever, I'm done. I'm just going to kind of ignore it all and just keep walking for the sake of harmony. So as we kind of look at personality tests, and maybe some of you have taken them, maybe some of you love them, maybe some of you hate them, uh, regardless of that, but what we tend to do um, is we tend to make excuses with our personality tests. We say, oh yeah, I'm just an Enneagram 3, so just keep getting out of my way so that I can uh, stop talking about feelings and get some stuff done. And we use it as an excuse with interacting with people so we don't actually have to deal with maybe the issues that are present. And we just say, oh, nope, that's just who I am. See you later, kind of a thing. But is that how God has instructed us and calls us to actually uh, commune with one another? Is that how he calls us to actually have conversations with each other in terms of, uh, of issues maybe coming up or sin that's maybe in our life? I don't really think so, and I think Matthew 18 really helps us see, hey, how do we actually deal with some frustrations that are maybe going on between you and other people in the kingdom of God and, and God's people? I think God specifically calls his people to be a kingdom of restoration. And the big idea that we're going to see in Matthew 18 today is that kingdom people act like the king. 
Kingdom people act like the king. So in the first section, we kind of see that kingdom people move towards restoration and repentance. And in the second section, what we're going to see is that kingdom people move towards forgiveness because they're forgiven, right? So uh, let's just reread verses 15 to 20 here quick and refresh our brains a little bit uh, to see how kingdom people move towards um, uh, restoration and repentance. So verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. So this whole chapter is Jesus teaching the disciples. Go back to the beginning of chapter 18. You start to see he begins another discourse section where he's talking to them. And it begins with them kind of asking the question, who, who's the greatest? Who, who's the greatest among us? And Jesus starts talking to them again about what greatness truly is. And they have a misunderstanding of greatness. And as the conversation goes on, Jesus just doesn't simply stop there in terms of what greatness really is and what it isn't. But he takes it into a section where he allows uh, this opportunity for great discipleship, where he's talking with the disciples about greatness. And he's talking about what it means to actually care for each other out of love with one another. And he doesn't just stop at like, hey, let's have a hatred of sin. Let's move in love towards actually putting off sin in our life. But then he says, let's talk about how this impacts our relationships with other kingdom people, other believers, other people who claim to follow Jesus, and how we're supposed to have the same heart as the king. Because we get it with the parable of the lost sheep, how God pursues the lost sheep. And here he's kind of inviting then not only for us to see that God pursues the lost sheep, but how do God's people then pursue people in their own kingdom, their own church family, right? Their own people that are right with them towards them. How do we run towards them in the middle of sin. So some translations, as you're kind of reading verse 15, uh, it might say, if your brother sins against you, some translations that you might have might read, they might just take out against you. It's kind of a, a debate between whether that was in the actual original or not, and there's manuscripts that have it, there's some manuscripts that don't. And so what I think we can take from this, regardless of whether against you is there or it's not there, the whole point that he's really pointing us towards is to see that we need to deal with the issue of sin, right? There's a conversation that's kind of going on between people and evaluating, hey, we need to deal with what sin is and move towards this hope that God would restore people, that God would continue to do a work in people's lives. Jesus goes on to explain, okay, so if someone is in sin or they've sinned against you specifically, how do we deal with this? He gets pretty straightforward, You start reading the the conversation and it says, okay, uh, you're supposed to go and you have a one-on-one conversation with that person specifically. You talk to them, you dialogue, you bring it to their attention if maybe they're blind to it for whatever reason. And if they listen, praise God. 
You've won your brother back. They've listened. They're repentant. They're turning back to Jesus like, praise the Lord that this is good news, that they're uh, wanting to walk towards Jesus. But if not, go and get a couple of people, people who love them, who care about them, and bring them with you as witnesses. And hopefully that will allow the person to then see, oh, this is a bigger deal. Like you're bringing some other people into the conversation. That means it's an actual issue maybe that's going on between us or in my life, right? If they don't listen, then he kind of goes on, hey, tell it to the church. And then if he doesn't listen to the church, then uh, treat him as a Gentile, a tax collector. So he basically says, treat him as an outsider, someone who's not a part of the kingdom because they're not repentant. They're not wanting to walk towards Jesus, couple of things to kind of break down and notice in this passage. It's got some heavy weight to it, maybe, that you're feeling, or you're just trying to figure out, okay, what's this actually look like? How do we do this? Do we do it well? Well, 15 through 17, if we just kind of look at these verses, the, the main point that Jesus is getting at is a heart for repentance, a desire to see people restored into the community of God, a desire to see people continue to love each other. Verse 15 sums it up super well. You have won your brother. The whole hope is that we would see people repent of their sin and to come back to Jesus, to continue to walk in humility and to ask Jesus to continue to do a work in their heart. The point is not to confront people because you're mad at them. It's not to confront people because you're annoyed by them, because you disagree, but but the point is to move towards people in a humble manner so that we would see Jesus be at work in the heart and in the lives of people. So last week, Ricky gives his sermon, and he talked about how we should genuinely care for one another, right? We should genuinely care for each other's holiness as brothers and sisters in the faith. It's not out of like this prideful sense or this legalistic manner that's in the middle of our hearts, but it's all out of love. It's because we all have a hatred of sin. It's because we want to see holiness continue to grow. Sin sin brings death. It robs us of life, and yet we want to walk towards life itself with his Jesus. And so as we kind of start sitting and thinking with this chapter, what we're trying to see, what, what Jesus is bringing us to see is that God's people don't walk alone. They walk with one another and pointing each other back towards Jesus. And sometimes, let's, let's be honest, this is not easy to do. Some of us who like love conflict and are direct people are like, oh yeah. And then there's other of us who are like conflict avoiders and you're kind of like, I never want to talk to people like that. Like that, that seems really difficult. But it, it's hard to consider even like, how do we approach this? And as we consider even approaching it, sometimes we just simply avoid it. We step back from it. We say, oh no, probably shouldn't step into it. And honestly, there's sometimes where we try to spiritualize our avoidance. We, we try to make it like Christian and put some sprinkles onto it so it sounds like holy when we're maybe doing it kind of a thing. We say things maybe like, well, maybe I'm just overreacting. Or, or we say, well, I, I just don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to create conflict. Well, who am I to judge? And, and as we look at this and evaluate maybe some of those questions, uh, we, we can move towards people even in our overreaction, maybe evaluate in our own heart, man, but that doesn't mean that my brother or sister isn't in sin or they haven't sinned against me. Like I should still address it. Even if I am overreacting, I can work that out in my own heart. If we are worried about hurting their feelings, our hope is not to hurt their feelings, but to actually 
point them to Jesus, right? We want, to see, we want them to see their sin. If we don't want to create conflict, the point of the conversation isn't conflict. The point of the conversation is restoration. We're not trying to create strife between each other, but we're trying to create a moment where we could say, let's humbly look to Jesus together, right? If we say, I don't want, who am I to judge? The point is we're not judging them. We're bringing them back to a point to where we hope that Jesus would continue to forgive and restore and renew them, right? And as we look to this, God's word kind of disagrees with all of those things that we try to use to avoid these types of conversations, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Similar thing. It says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. I love this verse too. These verses. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, Let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from their error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I love that last piece of that verse because when we walk towards people in their sin and we point them towards Jesus, God saves like the opportunity from them to continue on in sin. Like he covers a multitude of sins in the middle of that. Proverbs chapter 9 verses 8 and 9. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning, right? Our hope is that we would continue to uh, have reverence for the fear of the Lord and, and walk towards Jesus in the middle of this, and that we would have humility in it all. The goal of these conversations, remember, is never to scold somebody, to try and embarrass them, to make fun of them, make them feel guilty or shameful. Like, the goal of these conversations is to hopefully persuade people to repent of their sin. That, that's what we want in the conversation. It's not to go up and punk somebody and be like, ha you stink, kind of a thing. Because the reality is we're, we're all sinful. We've, we've all fallen into sin. And, and so our hope is to humbly walk towards people that we love and care about and to actually point them back to Jesus, to restore them. God's people are not the type of people that just let each other walk in sin. We want to be people who continually address what's going on in each other's lives to move each other towards Christ, to say, let's do this together. And we can do this because Jesus gives us the opportunity and the authority to do so. This next couple of verses are kind of confusing, especially 18. If you look at it, you're like, what's going on there? Binding and loosing. What does that even mean? How do we understand that? And we see that this is really, Jesus is referring back to the conversation maybe a little bit with with Peter. When he's talking about the keys of the kingdom, he uses a similar language of binding and loosing and binding and loosing and kind of wondering, okay, so what does that mean? Well, imagine you're binding something with with rope, right? What are you doing? You're tying it together so that it won't come loose, so that it won't fall away, so it won't fall out. And if you're loosening it, what are you doing? You're just letting it kind of go. You're letting it come out of the tightrope. So if you're loosing, you're permitting something. You're setting it free. If you're binding, you're prohibiting something. Another way to kind of understand and, and look to this verse is to read it as whatever you bind will have already been determined in heaven. Whatever you loose will already have been determined in heaven. Because as we look at this, God's people are moving towards, hopefully, humble, graceful, loving conversations that are pointing people back to Jesus. And the encouragement that Jesus is making here is, as you prayerfully walk towards your brother or sister in Christ, the Spirit will move in your heart 
to actually put you in line with what's already good and true in the kingdom of God. You can kind of see it as he fleshes the rest of it out with chapter, or with verse 19. You start to see, okay, he says, if you agree with anybody on any matter that you pray for, it's going to be done for you. We just take that at a face value reading. It's like, oh, sweet. I'll pray with Ricky for a new car and hopefully it just shows up. You know, like that's not what it's saying here or communicating. But what it's communicating is, look at the context again. The context is dealing with sin as you're engaging with brothers and sisters in the faith. And so as you're prayerfully actually maybe moving towards that second step where you're bringing in two or three more, that you would pray as brothers and sisters of the faith and that your hearts would be aligned to actually understand, hey, is this something that we can continue to move towards this person? Or do we want to see them? How do we actually have this conversation together, right? That you would pray that God's spirit would continue to unite you as you move forward in this conversation, that God would give you wisdom and guidance in how to handle this. Verse 20 comes at the end of this section. Many of you have probably heard this verse, right? It's a verse we love to quote at like Bible studies, dinners, different times. You might have heard people kind of communicate this and say, oh, sweet. There's two or three of us. Let's go. Jesus is finally in the room. And the reality is Christ is always with you. He's given us that promise. The Spirit of God has dwelt within you if you're a believer, if you're walking with Jesus. Or maybe you've heard some people say, well, we could have church right here, right, right in our home because we're two or three or more are gathered. That, that's what that verse means. But let's examine the context again. It helps us interpret the Scripture. If you're looking at the conversation that's kind of happening within what's happening, it's all about restoring somebody. So as you kind of evaluate, man, if you've ever been in a conversation where you're trying to discuss with somebody else, hey, how do we handle uh, something that's going on in our brother or sister's life? You're maybe in that stage where you're bringing in the two or three more and you're trying to get guidance and wisdom and you're praying together. Like this is Jesus affirming those conversations, those prayers to say, in the thick of it, I am with you. In the moments where you feel like, I, I don't know if we should address it. In the, in the times where you're just kind of like, ah, I don't know if I'm going to communicate everything well. In the moments where you're kind of like, what if we just avoid it? Like Jesus is encouraging us to say, I'm with you in the middle of that. I'm present with you as you wrestle with how to have these conversations. I'm here to continue to encourage you to move towards holiness and to care for your brother or sister. Now, this passage may trigger some things for some of you guys, maybe in your hearts or your mind. Maybe you're thinking of different situations that you've experienced. Maybe you've been in a church that's abused or handled the situation poorly. Maybe you've gone through, maybe you personally have gone through something like this in your own walk with Jesus where maybe like some church discipline has had to happen or something, whatever it is. I want us to see the hope that Jesus is pointing us towards in this passage. I want us to see what God truly desires for his church in this passage. And it all goes back to the heart of restoration. Jesus does not want his sheep to stray. Jesus desires for his sheep to continue to belong with one another, to stay together, to call each other back home. The motivation with all of these situations is to win our brother or sister back in these type of situations. Now, some application for us, because uh, 
this passage could be something where we read it and it's like pretty straightforward when you're going and boom, okay, cool. And maybe some of you guys are like, oh, I got somebody in my city group. I got to go get them kind of a thing. And here's what I want us to actually like think about and ponder on as we consider a passage like this. First, if you're the one who's going to someone else, if you're the one who's going to a brother or sister because they're in sin or they've sinned specifically against you, be humble in your approach. Evaluate your own heart before you go into the conversation. Because if they've sinned specifically against you, you're probably angry. You're probably frustrated. You're probably like maybe just burning it. Maybe your anxiety is kind of going up in the situation. Whatever it is, would you be humble enough in your approach to actually acknowledge your anger, your frustration, whatever, to confess that specifically to the person even. As you go into the conversation and say, hey, I, I'm still a little frustrated. I, I may not say everything the right way here. I I'm, I'm, may be really annoyed with you at this point, kind of a thing. But to just be humble enough to, to consider your own sin in the situation. And and then to maybe move forward towards them, to be humble enough. The uh, second thing uh, to consider when you're just evaluating this passage or wanting to walk towards a a brother or sister in the faith is to, hey, read what it says. It doesn't say, oh, you know, your brother or sister's caught in sin. Go talk to five other people about it and then don't talk to them about it. Like he says, go to them directly. Go to them, have the conversation, deal with them specifically. I know these conversations are hard. I've had some of them. Some of them have been brought to me. Like there are people in this church who have come to me who have said, Alex, hey, you've kind of wronged me in this specific situation. Like these are things that we have to evaluate on ourselves to just say, hey, this, this is a time where I need to be humble enough to actually respond and hear what they're saying and to communicate well. And we want to address each other first and foremost before we go to, you know, 20 other people to dialogue about something that maybe we're frustrated with and we don't directly go to them. But we could ask for courage. We can ask for boldness. We can ask that the Spirit would give us a, a heart to care for them and love them. Um, and third, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking about someone else um, who's maybe in sin or a current situation that you're walking through, I, I want to ask you to stop thinking about them. And I want to ask you, if the roles were flipped, how would you respond? Would you be humble enough to hear what they're saying? Would you be humble enough to not sit there and try to bicker over the situation but to actually respond in the fact that maybe you've wronged someone or maybe you are walking in sin. So our heart is ultimately, hey, we should be just as humble as we hope they're going to be, right? Why would we expect them to repent and walk towards Jesus if we're not willing to? This is an opportunity for us as God's people to evaluate our own hearts and our own humility and would we be willing to say yes to Jesus rather than yes to ourselves. Trust me, I I mess up in this situation all the time, you know, where if you're married, you kind of know, hey, you said something to your spouse and they come to you and they're like, hey, that kind of hurt my feelings. Or they say something and you're like, well, you said it first. Like we're quick to kind of respond and and blame and we don't want to just 
take like actual time to be humble enough to stop and, and apologize for what we've done. To walk towards forgiveness together. It is my prayer that we would regularly grow in our humility as God's people. Think about how much hurt we could save others if we did, just did step one well. Like, really think about it. How much, like, pain we could stop from actually happening in the lives of other brothers and sisters if we loved them enough to actually just go to them in a humble manner and have a conversation. I want us to see, man, what would it actually look like if we were a people who had a hatred of sin and a love for one another that we would address in a loving and compassionate manner to restore people to the church, that we would hopefully stop other people from being hurt by sin from one another and from each other personally. We, we can be hopeful that these types of conversations won't create conflict, but that these types of conversations will be opportunities for us to continue to say, man, keep coming. Like Jesus is forgiving me just as much as he's forgiving you. Like look at the picture that we could walk towards people if they're in the middle of addiction and whatever it might be, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sin that they're committing. And, and, and we actually lovingly press in and say, would you move towards Jesus with me and I'm here for you? What would it look like if we were people who continued to love one another enough to be uncomfortable to confront someone? It might seem weird that as Jesus kind of instructs the disciples in how to do this, he ups the ante each time. It's like one-on-one, have the conversation. They, they don't listen there, bring two or three more. Then he says, okay, they don't listen there, tell it to the church. And some of you might be hearing that and you're kind of like, tell it to the church? Like that, that seems weird. Communicating that to a whole room of people, that one person in the room is like, just unrepentantly walking in sin. And we start to think, wow, that seems like you're trying to embarrass them. Here's the reality. Jesus cares so much about his sheep that he sends an entire army of people to say, we love you, please come back. Like he's sending an entire room full of people to say, we want you to walk towards Jesus with us. That's the picture that he's painting for us. That, that it's not an act to embarrass somebody, but it's a, it's, it's a love of them so much and an attack on sin. Right? We, we want to continue to pursue towards Jesus, and Jesus is calling his church to be a kingdom of restoration, a place of repentance. The king's people act like the king in pursuing his sheep to move towards restoration to where they belong. Why does he do this? What's the motivation for it all? We kind of get it in this next section. And so I'm not, I won't read the whole thing. But uh, as we look to the second point that we're kind of seeing in the text and what Jesus is drawing out is the fact that we are forgiven. And so we forgive, right? The king's people act like the king. We see this dialogue between Peter and Jesus after the conversation. Peter's kind of like, okay, you're talking about how we deal with uh, sin with each other. So if everything goes well and they repent, Jesus, how many times do I forgive them if they do it again? Because the reality is, let's be real, uh, we could repent from sin and then like a couple weeks later, you know, be doing really great. And then, ah, crud, dang it, I gossiped against that person again. 
Right? Like we, we fall into sin, and our hope is that we would continually be repenting and moving towards Jesus. But as we walk towards it, Peter's kind of like, how many times should I forgive this person? And Peter thinks he's being generous because rabbis would often tell their people, they would say, hey, forgive them three times and, and then kind of keep moving on. And so Peter's like, I'll do it seven times. What do you think about that, Jesus? Jesus kind of comes back at him. No, 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 no. Seven times 70, right? He ups the ante even more. And what Jesus isn't saying here is he's not like, okay, actually count them. But it's the evaluation. Hey, you should be a people that are continually forgiving over and over. And that forgiveness should just be a part of who you are. And while Peter wants to limit forgiveness, Jesus brings it to his attention with the parable of the unforgiving sermon, the servant. So we kind of have this conversation. Jesus is telling this story of a king who's got a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. So if you try to convert that, you know, to modern day money, it's something like $10 billion. I don't know who's just got that hanging around. Not me. But that's an outrageous amount of debt. Like, think about it. You know, $10 billion in debt to this guy. He could never repay this. Never could this servant repay this in his entire lifetime. So he goes to beg the king for patience. Just give me a little bit more time. I'll pay you back. As they're having this conversation, the king out of compassion, out of great compassion, grace, forgiveness, he says, okay, it's wiped clean. No more debt. That's amazing. If you owed me $10 billion, you probably wouldn't get that answer. Um, I got bills to pay. (laughs) The king kind of responds in an unbelievable kindness. The the servant then, oh, what's his response? Oh, Johnny owes me some money. So he goes and finds him. He starts choking the dude out, which I'm just kind of like, whoa, that seems aggressive. And then the guy responds to him almost in the exact same way. Just give me a little bit more time. I'll pay you back. Start looking at, okay, well, how much does this guy owe him? He says, a hundred denarii. Convert that, modern day English, kind of American money. Oh, that's about four months of wages. Four months of pay. Substantially less than 10 billion. You kind of evaluate, oh, okay, this is actually realistic. That guy could pay that back. That makes sense. He could pay back that debt. The man begs for his patience and, nope. He ain't having any. So it gets back to the king, and we start to see the king's frustrated because the servant doesn't forgive, just like he's forgiven. And then we start to get to this point to where we really start, we're starting to see the point of the whole illustration, right? Jesus is saying, hey, forgive because you've been forgiven. Start to evaluate, okay, well, what, is, what does that mean? I mean, it feels like a high call, like forgive for the rest of our lives? He Ups the any big time. Verse 33, shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I've had mercy on you? Because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers, tortured him until he could pay everything that he owed. He ain't ever paying that back. That's the rest of his life. That's eternity. I mean, that guy's never able to pay that back. So also, my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from their heart. From your heart. So, what is Jesus saying? 
What does forgiveness actually look like in our lives? Does that mean that Jesus is saying Christians should just let people trample all over them and hurt them time and time again, over and over? Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so, because that's not what forgiveness is. Because forgiveness doesn't just mean, okay, see you later, thanks, and then just let them trample all over you and be a doormat for them all over again. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the relationship is automatically restored. You don't see the king kind of like being best buds with the servant after he forgives him, right? He kind of sends him away. And then you look at it. It doesn't mean that the pain from the past is gone. As you evaluate different things that have been done to you personally or things that you've done to others. It doesn't mean that there's like a renewal of trust between you and that person. It doesn't mean that you forget everything that's kind of happened. Like, you know that they've still wronged you in that way. But forgiveness does mean that you don't bring it back up to that person and keep attacking them. Forgiveness does mean that as you evaluate the situation and you look at your own heart, if you've got bitterness and resentment and anger that, that just builds up every time you think about it, man, that's, that's something that you're enslaved to in the moment. Forgiveness doesn't mean, or it does mean that we process with the Lord. We work with like the Spirit of God and asking us to continue to move towards actually forgiving the people that have wronged us. That we would actually understand what it means to be set free from the chains of, of pain that maybe are held over us because of the situation that's happened. That we're able to walk towards God to a point to where we're no longer thinking, okay, I'll forgive them when they do this, 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 and this. Because what we tend to do when we are evaluating, oh, should we forgive that person? Should we not forgive them? We, we start saying, well, I'm the judge. I'm the jury. I'm the executioner. I'm the one that decides how they have to repay the debt that they owe me. And we hate this passage because it takes work. Like when you're thinking about it, it doesn't, hmm, that seems hard. We love the passage where Jesus is like, just kick the dust off your feet. Keep walking. We're like, oh, that's easy. You know? But as we consider what is really forgiveness, it's time to contemplate, to wrestle with, to take time to work through it all with the Lord, to to actually move towards a place where we're saying, man, I don't have to be the judge because God is the judge of the world. Man, I don't have to be frustrated and angry over this situation because I'm letting Jesus continue to work in my heart to move me towards him. And Jesus is helping us see that we endlessly have been forgiven of a debt that we owed. He's moving us towards a place where we actually understand, man, why is the king frustrated with the servant? It's because he's going out and he doesn't understand that he just got forgiven a $10 billion. And he's like, I need my four months wages, buddy. Keep them coming. Chokes the guy out. And how the king responds, it's all just as Jesus is saying, because so also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or his sister from your heart. Out of great kindness, the king shows forgiveness. Out of great mercy, the king shows forgiveness. Out of just like this unbelievable weight that he could have continued to say, yeah, you need to keep paying me back. $10 billion is a lot of money. And yet he let him go. 
And as Jesus is instructing the disciples here, he's pointing them towards respond the way the king does. Forgive endlessly. And we tend not to forgive because we don't understand what we've been forgiven of. Or we often don't think our sin is very bad. We're like, well, mine's not as bad as theirs. So they really got to pay me back for it. They, they really got to suffer through it. But if we simply walked through our day, and if we counted all the sins, right? If you start counting your sins, you know, kind of a thing. And you start listing them or thinking about them. At the end of the day, you would just see one day's worth of debt that you've been forgiven. Now, multiply that day in and day out. And you probably couldn't even count every single one that you've committed. So as I'm thinking about, okay, what does God really call us to? Well, he calls us to care about people more than we care about ourselves. And I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, there's about 10 different times already today that I haven't done that. Like I'm greeting all of you guys and I could be standing out in the cold and I'm like, man, I'm chilling inside just for myself. You know, We start thinking, okay, we're called not to be greedy, and yet we obsess over money or status, or we start coveting a bunch of things of our friends. And and I'm thinking about myself when I'm writing these down, and I'm listing a bunch of things that I'm like, oh, shoot, yeah, I do covet because I see friends with nice things, and then I'm like, oh, I want that. i got to work harder. I see some people get some awards or some status or be invited to a conference, and I'm like, what do I do? How can I get invited to places to go speak? And I start dreaming and listing all these networks and things that I just like want for myself. And and then I start to realize, man, this is just all about me. And then when I start actually looking at it, I realize this is all stuff that Jesus took on the cross for me. And as we start to evaluate ourselves, this is just a small picture of the sin that we commit against the holy God ways that we run away from him every single day, time and time again, moment after moment, where we see times where Jesus continues to say, paid for, forgiven, slate clean, done with, all because he took the cross for us. And as we stop and evaluate this stuff, when we get to understand what Jesus has actually done for us each individually, it helps us walk towards forgiveness. When, when we start to understand the debt that, we, that we're free from, that's where we start to see some real hope in what Christ is continuing to do in our hearts. Because we can walk towards forgiveness because he's the one who's doing that in our hearts, right? He's the one who's at work in our lives, And friends, my hope today, because what we want out of this passage is we look at it and evaluate and kind of like, okay, cool. I got some bitterness and some people messed me up back in the day. And you're thinking, how do I walk towards forgiveness then? What are my 10 steps? And as we evaluate this, the hope isn't that we would figure out some specific platform to say, okay, got step one, step two, step three, and then I'm at step five. It's done. It's over. I've forgiven them. 
But the reality is, as we look to Jesus, our, my hope isn't that you would try and figure out, hey, how do I get to 10 steps of forgiveness? But that you would be able to see that Jesus no longer is holding you to the debt that you owe him, but it, it, that all the, all the stuff that maybe you're processing through and working through and actually evaluating in your own heart, that you would see that Jesus continued to forgive you time and time again, over and over, debt paid. Jesus gave you great hope in life and that these passages would help us see that there was a relentless God that pursued us continually over and over again as we were in sin, as we sinned against one another, as we sinned against him, as we walked away from him, ran away, as we continue to say, Jesus, I want more of me and less of you. Jesus said, I'm still coming for you over and over again. And that's the great hope that I would hope we all see in this passage is that we have a king who came to us. And when we try to say, well, God, just give me a little bit more time. I'll pay you back next week. I'll do better next time. And we try to win him over with all these accolades or different kind of works that we do. He says, I already did it. That's the God that we get to look to. That's, that's where my hope uh, it would be in the middle of the fact that we have a God that, that as we look to him and as we see the forgiveness that we have received, that it would stir us up to continue to ask him to give us a heart like him, that, uh, that we would be a people who respond like the king, that we pursue people, that we walk towards forgiveness, that we would be humble enough to repent in the middle of our sin, and that we would be a, a kingdom of restoration in our church family and to the rest of the world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the unsurmountable amount of debt that you've paid for. God, as, as, as we sit here and as we ponder on what, what forgiveness looks like in our lives, um, Lord, I'm, I'm reminded that as I sit in this room, stand in this room, and I just consider my own sin, the unsurmountable amount of sin that you've died for, that you've paid for, not just for me, but in each of our lives, each single person in this room that you've said, I've come for you. Jesus, I pray that as we look to you and that as we continue to grow in our understanding of, of what you've done for us, that you would stir our hearts to move towards forgiveness towards others. God, I pray for any of us that are struggling with anger, bitterness, resentment, frustration, uh, any of us that maybe have strife between us and someone else, any of us that maybe are dealing with someone who sinned against us or someone who's in sin that we love dearly, Jesus, I pray that you would help us have a heart like yours. I pray that you would uh, continue to give us wisdom, that you would give us courage, that you would give us strength and and how to move forward in conversations. I pray that you would uh, continue to allow our hearts to move towards forgiveness. And I pray that we would be a, a place and a, a people and a church uh, that looks like your kingdom 